Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This is a bonus episode filling in the space between Season 7 and Season 8. This episode is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. We have four seasons so far discussing the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, the war between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, and two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate. If you need to hear more Islamic history, consider joining Islamic History Exclusive. Just go to your Apple Podcast or Spotify apps and search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by going to patreon.com slash Islamic History. This episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad Podcast. This is a free podcast chronicling the life of Allah's last messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It is available on all podcasting platforms. Alright, so on to the show. This will be the third and final episode on the life of Malik Ambar. In the first episode, we discussed the early life and career of Malik Ambar. We also discussed the formation and early history of his eventual home, the Ahmadagar Sultanate in the Dakkan region of India. And we also discussed how the Ahmadnagar Sultanate was ruled and founded by the Nizam Shahi dynasty. However, Malik Ambar was the real power in Ahmadnagar. In the second episode, we discussed his on-again, off-again war with the Mughal Empire. We left off with Malik Ambar having launched a new campaign against the Mughals that almost chased them out of the Deccan. Desperate, the local Mughal commander, Kani Kanan, he asked Mughal prince Kuram to bring an army from the north to help in the fight against Malik Ambar. So that's where we're going to pick up. So Prince Khuram arrived in the Dakkan in 1621 with a large force, and he immediately began a major offensive against Malik Ambar and his forces from Ahmed Nagar. Prince Khuram was a very competent and experienced military commander. In fact, he would later rule the Mughal Empire as Shah Jahan, and he would rule for 30 years. He is perhaps most famous for building the Taj Mahal. Prince Khuram defeated Malik Ambar's forces and put them on the run. They chased them out of Aurangabad, which was the new capital of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. Once again, Prince Khuram burned Aurangabad to the ground. He had done the same thing back in 1616. Malik Ambar fled to his fort at Dalatabad and began negotiating with the Mughals. He offered to return a bunch of territory and promised to pay tribute to the Mughals. Prince Khuram really wanted to return back to the north to Delhi where his father, Emperor Jahangir, was sick. Prince Khuram was worried that certain individuals in the royal court might try to squeeze him out of his inheritance and prevent him from succeeding his father as the emperor of the Mughal Empire. So for Prince Khuram, the stuff that was happening in the Deccan with Malik Ambar and Kani Kanan and all these things, this was really an annoying distraction to him and it was keeping him away from more important matters. So he quickly accepted Malik Ambar's submission and prepared to head back north. 
Now, this should have really settled things in the Dakan, but instead, things got more complicated. Now, we'll get more into the Mughal politics when Season 8 is released later on this year, inshallah. But for now, I'll try to encapsulate or shortcut everything for you now so you can at least understand what was going on. The Sikh emperor, that is Jahangir, he ordered Prince Khuram to go to Kandahar in southeast Afghanistan. The reason why was that the Persian ruler, Shah Abbas II, was marching on this city. Prince Khuram, however, thought this might have been a ploy to keep him away from the royal court where all of the political shenanigans was going on. He had also learned that his stepmother, Nur Jahan, was plotting behind his back. So while he was still in the Dakan, Prince Khuram sent a letter to his father asking for the Punjab region before committing to a fight in Afghanistan. Now this demand from his son, who was supposed to be a subordinate, angered the emperor Jahangir and he issued a severe reprimand against his son and banned Prince Khuram from returning to the royal court. Prince Khuram quickly apologized and tried to get back into his father's good graces, but the emperor did not accept them. So now Prince Khuram was worried about his life. He was concerned that his father might make an order to kill him or that some ambitious captain or commander might use this as an opportunity to get in good with the emperor and off uh, Prince Khuram on his own. So Prince Khuram decided to revolt against his own father. He revolted in 1623 and marched on the city of Agra where the Mughal treasury was. Agra is located in the modern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh. It is about 95 miles south of Delhi. However, Prince Khuram was intercepted and defeated by the imperial forces and so he has to flee. He eventually returns to the Deccan and seeks the help of Malik Ambar. However, Malik Ambar politely declined to assist Prince Khuram. Essentially, Malik Ambar didn't want to get involved in a war between a rebel prince and the powerful Mughal Empire. So, having been rebuffed and denied by Malik Ambar, Prince Khuram turned to the Bijapur Sultanate and asked them for help, but they also turned him down. Now the Mughal armies, they are pursuing Prince Khuram, and they finally arrived in the Dakan where Prince Khuram was. Around the same time that the Mughal armies are coming in, going after the rebel prince, around the same time, Malik Ambar and the Bijapur Sultanate, they began disputing over a region called Sholapur. Sholapur is this fertile land in the Dakan, about 200 miles southeast of Mumbai. Malik Ambar and the Sultan of Bijapur, Ibrahim Adil Shah II, they both appealed to the Mughals, trying to get the Mughals on their side. So you have these Mughal armies coming into the Dakan, and you have both of these men, Malik Ambar from Ahmednagar and Ibrahim Adil Shah II from Bijapur, they both appealed to the Mughal commanders of these armies to help them against the other side. They both wanted Mughal support against the other person. 
the Mughal generals, one was Mahabad Khan, and then the other was Prince Pervez, one of the emperor's sons, they didn't want either side helping Prince Khuram. Their thinking was that if they help one of these two men, either Malik Ambar or Ibrahim Adil Shah II, if they help either one of them, then the other person would throw their support behind Prince Khuram. And so they kind of just delayed. They refused to really get involved. They didn't say no, but they didn't say yes either. And they wasted as much time as possible trying to play these three people, Prince Khuram, uh, Malik Ambar, and Ibrahim Adel Shah II, try to play them all off against each other. However, eventually, the rebel prince, that is Prince Khuram, he fled the Dakan, and with that, the Mughal commanders decided to throw their support behind Bijapur, the Bijapur Sultanate. They considered Malik Ambar to be the bigger threat, and they wanted to weaken him as much as possible. After all, Malik Ambar had given them much more trouble than Ibrahim Adel Shah II had. So now that Malik Ambar realizes that he is severely outnumbered and severely outmanned, he decides to leave Aurangabad. So he moves his family and the Nizam Shahi royal family. They're the, one, they're the ones who really ruled the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, even though Malik Ambar was calling all the shots. He moved them out of the capital city, Aurangabad, to the fort at Dolatabad. We mentioned this fort at Dolatabad in the previous episode. So in 1624, Malik Ambar led an army towards the fort at Kandahar in the Golconda Sultanate. This is towards the center of the Indian Peninsula. He was hoping, his hope was to secure the assistance of Muhammad Qutb Shah, who was the ruler of the Golconda Sultanate. Now, it does not appear from my research that the Golconda Sultanate actually offered Malik Ambar any actual true support. However, Malik Ambar was able to extract tribute from them. So from there, Malik Ambar then marched south towards the city of Bidar. Bidar is in the northern part of the modern Indian state called Karnataka. Once he arrived there, he began fighting and defeated the Bijapur Sultanate forces that had been holed up in a local fortress in this region. After defeating the Bijapur army, Malik Ambar then marched on Bijapur itself, and this forced the sultan of the Bijapur Sultanate, Ibrahim Adel Shah II, to take refuge in a different fortress. Malik Ambar promptly put this fortress under siege. So now we have Malik Ambar besieging the sultan of the Bijapur Sultanate in this fortress. This is Ibrahim Adel Shah II. Ibrahim Adil Shah II, he writes to the Mughals asking them to send him some help. So the Mughals sent an army led by a general named Mullah Muhammad Lari. Muhammad Lari and the Mughal army, they had been stationed at Burhanpur. Malik Ambar was kind of surprised by this. He did not expect another Mughal army to come after him after he had finally eluded the previous two. 
So Malik Ambar wrote a letter to the Mughal commander asking them to stay out of the Deccan affairs. He basically said, let the Deccan rulers sort out their own issues. We don't need you interfering every time we have a squabble. Well, of course, the Mughals ignored his request and kept on marching to save their ally, Ibrahim Adil Shah II. So Malik Ambar, he knows he's about to get outnumbered and crushed by the Mughals. So he lifted the siege at Bijapur and began to retreat back to his own territory in Ahmadnagar. However, the Mughals pursued him the entire way, all the way back to his territory. Eventually, though, Malik Ambar decides that he has to stop running and it's time to hold the line. So he gathered his army inside of a fortress near a small village called Batodi, and this led to the Battle of Batswadi. This Battle of Batswadi was a turning point for Malik Ambar and his on-again, off-again war with the Mughals. Now, mixed in with the Ahmadnagar forces were several Maratha fighters. The Maratha commander was a man named Shahaji Bonsle. As mentioned previously in previous episodes, the Marathas were Hindu warriors that the local Muslim powers often recruited into their ranks. And as we mentioned, sometimes the Marathas could be fickle. Perhaps fickle isn't the correct word, more opportunistic. The, the Marathas would join whichever group they could get the most from. So this commander of the Maratha Hindu fighters, his name was Shahaji. His son, name was Shiwaji. Shiwaji would become the founder of the Maratha Empire. And in fact, ironically, the Maratha Empire would wind up displacing several of these Muslim sultanates that are fighting each other at this time, including they would also take a lot of land from the Mughals as well. But Malik Ambar, he could not fight the combined Mughal and Bijapur forces head on. So he had to utilize guerrilla tactics instead. Lots of ambushes, sneak attacks, things like that. While doing this, the Maratha commander, Shahaji Bonsle, and the Marathas, they fully embraced and learned and accepted these guerrilla tactics. After all, they were mixed in with the army of Malik Ambar. Later on, many years later, the Marathas would use these tactics against the Muslims as the Maratha empire grew. But that's a story for another day. All right, so the Battle of Batswadi took place in September 1624 during the monsoon season. Even though Malik Ambar was outnumbered, he had an advantage against the Mughals and, uh, and their Bijapur allies. Malik Ambar understood the territory much better than his enemies. After all, this was his territory. He was the de facto ruler of this territory. So one of the first things he did was to attack the Mughal supply lines. As he launched his surprise guerrilla attacks against the Mughal and Bijapur forces, he also managed to cut off their supply lines. As Malik Ambar 
launched his surprise guerrilla attacks against the combined Mughal Bijapur forces, he also focused on cutting off their supply lines. With limited supplies, what had been a strength, that is their outrageous numbers, for the Mughals now became a problem. With limited supplies, it was difficult for them to provide for and feed such a large military force. And with a lack of resources, this led the Mughals and the Bijapur commanders, military commanders in this army, to begin arguing amongst themselves, creating discord and lowering the morale of their soldiers. Meanwhile, with the monsoon season on them, they were constantly hampered by heavy rains. And so with few supplies, chaotic leadership, and constant rain pouring down on their heads, thousands of soldiers from the Mughal-Bijapur alliance defected. But the main deciding point, the main deciding moment, came when Malik Ambar flooded the region. There was a river separating Malik Ambar's fortress from the Mughal and Bijapur forces. Upstream from that river, there was a dam that had been built by the former prime minister of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, a man named Salabat Khan. What follows now, we're going to read an excerpt from the article, Flushing Out the Enemy, Revisiting the Battle of Batswadi by Pushkar Sohoni. Quote, the Batswadi Dam is upstream from this location at a distance of around two kilometers to the northwest of the palace. The battle was fought in the month of September 1624, which would have been late in the monsoons, thus ensuring that the water levels in the dam were near maximum and the ground was saturated with water in concordance with the evidence in Futuhati Adil Shahi. Unquote. So this just proved to be too much for the Mughal and the Bijapur forces. The morale was already low with the defections, the infighting, the lack of resources, and the constant rain. And now with Malik Umbar flooding the already soaked ground with the already swelled waters of the dam, this just made it completely impossible to fight. One of the primary strengths of the Mughals was their cavalry but there's no way for them to really use them in this environment. The horses would inevitably get stuck or slowed down in these floodwaters, making them easy targets for the Ahmadnagar forces under Malik Ambar. That is, if the horses didn't drown or simply swim away. Finally, the Mughal forces and the Bijapur forces, they broke camp and retreated. But Malik Ambar was not done. With his enemy retreating, he launched a counter-strike against them. He continued to launch ambushes and surprise attacks against the retreating soldiers, and he also put the fortress at Ahmadnagar, which had been under Mughal control for several years now, he also went and put that fortress under siege. In fact, Malik Ambar left some of his officers in Ahmadnagar to continue the siege against the fortress while he led another portion of his forces towards Bijapur. 
Once he got to Bijapur, he captured that fertile region called Sholapur in June of 1625. Sholapur was the center of this whole dispute between Malik Ambar and the Bijapur Sultanate. So he went and captured this region that had been the cause of all of this fighting in the first place. And by the time he was done, Malik Ambar had recaptured most of the Ahmadnagar territory from the Mughals. Now, while all of this is going on, we still got Prince Khurram. He's still, he's still in the picture. Prince Khurram was still on the run from the Mughals. He had made his way back to the Dakkan region of India, and Prince Pervez and Mahabad Khan were still in pursuit of him. Now, Malik Ambar, however, his fortunes are on the rise. He has just regained all this territory back. He had beat a much stronger army. He had pretty much nullified any any offer, any help that the Bijapur Sultanate could provide. So Malik Ambar decided that this would be a good time. This would be the right time to help the rebel prince, Prince Khurram. After all, they now shared a common enemy. However, this alliance between Malik Ambar and the rebel prince, it did not last very long. Once again, once again, the political situation in Delhi changed. And furthermore, Prince Khurram was tired of running and being on the run and being pursued by the Mughal armies. And so he begged his father for forgiveness for his wrongdoings from before. Meanwhile, his stepmother, the one who he was suspicious of this whole time, Nur Jahan, she was concerned about the growing power of the Prince Pervez Mahabad Khan alliance. These were the commanders of the army in pursuit of Prince Khurram. They were getting too strong, they were getting too influential. And Nur Jahan was concerned about it because she wanted her son to become the next Mughal emperor. So she convinced her husband, Emperor Jahangir, to be lenient with the rebel prince. And the Emperor Jahangir, who was very old and sick by this time, he accepted Prince Khurram's apology. And after some negotiations and some back and forth, father and son finally reconciled in 1626. And conveniently, coincidentally, around this same time, Malik Ambar decided to cease and stop his military operations against the Mughals. And as things would happen, that same year, on May 1st, 1626, Malik Ambar died at the age of 77. So that will mostly conclude our story about Malik Ambar. However, I do want to discuss a little bit about his legacy. Obviously, Obviously, Malik Ambar was a great general, but he was also a very capable government administrator. His revenue system was based on the revenue system introduced by Mughal Emperor Akbar. He revamped the taxation system to produce higher yields, while at the same time lowering taxes for the farmers and peasants who grew the produce that the tax was based upon. Malik Ambar is also known for the Nahar, 
This was the water supply system in Aurangabad. The water supplying the city of Aurangabad came from a stream called Kam. There was a water mill that drove the water from the stream down the canal into the city. When the water fell on the blades of the water mill, they rotated, and then, using a wooden valve, the water was directed into the canal and funneled to the city. This was a very amazing and forward-thinking piece of infrastructure during this medieval period. We had many European cities who could not even get access to fresh water, and here is this Muslim city in the middle of India able to do so. In fact, this canal was so, it worked so well, it worked so efficiently for centuries that it was able to go without maintenance all the way up until 1931 when it finally needed cleaning. Now, as for the Mughals, Emperor Jahangir died the year after Malik Ambar died. There was some conflict between Prince Khurram and his half-brother for control of the Mughal throne. There was some fighting and some bloodshed and some executions and some imprisonment and some blinding. But eventually, Prince Khurram would take the throne as the Mughal emperor, and he would take on the regnal name of Shah Jahan. And we mentioned some of his accomplishments earlier in this episode. However, I want to stress that we will get deeper into these events, inshallah, the events of the Mughal Empire in Season 8 of the Islamic History Podcast, which should be coming in a month or two, probably two, inshallah. So this will conclude our series on Malik Ambar. We'll begin a new series soon, inshallah. I'm not sure what it's going to be, but there'll be a new one coming up perhaps in about two weeks. But until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.